When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The biggest thing for me is trying to replace any fear with fascination. Like People just don't know about the ocean. And we're told from such an early age to be scared of so many things in the water. And it pisses me off. That is photographer Matt Draper. And this is episode 183 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. You'll be you. And for the next hour and something, we'll be together while we listen to this episode 183 of the show with photographer Matt Draper. You can find him on Instagram at M-A-T-T-D-R-A-P-E-R photography is his uh, Instagram handle. You'll know him when you find him. It's pretty obvious. He's also mattdraperphotography.com. More about him in a moment. Uh, but thank you so much for being here. Thanks for all the emails that you sent through to me this week. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Uh, do try to write back to as many as I possibly can. Thank you very much for being in touch. It's always lovely to hear from you. And um, uh, thank you very much to all the wonderful, wonderful uh, podsies that you've been sending through. That is a photograph taken with the phone you're listening to this on. And it's a photo taken of whatever you're looking at while you're listening to this. Uh, it, you know, you can be in it. Uh, I don't mind if you're not. It's uh, more interesting sometimes just to see what you're looking at while you listen to this show. It could be dishes. It could be a sleeping kid. It could be traffic. It could be you on a plane. Uh, wherever you are, please do send a photo through uh, hashtag P-O-D-S-I-E, and you can send it through to me on email or Snapchat or Twitter or Insta or wherever you want to send it. Um, but, yeah, I, I love this. I love getting those pictures, and they're fantastic. And thank you to everybody that has sent one through. I've got a couple of great ones this week. Uh, I did try to retweet uh, a couple of really good ones as well. But thank you all so, so, so very much. I've been, unfortunately, down for the count all week. You might hear it in my voice. I've got the man cold, which is like a regular cold, but um, uh, sounds worse if you live with me. <laughs> uh, to be fair, though, I have had the most painful sneezes I've ever had in my entire life where I feel like when I sneeze, every one of my ribs and shoulders 
shoulder joints will kind of dislocate for a moment and then it'll come back together. There's that much pressure inside my body. It sucks. Uh, but yeah, I'm still down for the count with that. I was going to travel this weekend, but uh, doctor said, no, don't travel. Um, it's the kind of sick where you've got to get blood tests. So we'll yet to see what's going on there. It might be just viral or not. Uh, but yeah, I'm sure you've done this where you have the warm Explorer socks on, you have the trackies on, you have the long sleeve t-shirt on, you have the hoodie on, you're under two dunas, you've got the two wheat bags, one on your neck, one on your tummy, and you're still freezing. Yeah, I had that going on this week. Poor Audrey's trying to sleep next to me and I'm tossing and turning with fever dreams. The poor thing. Um, so it did suck, but um, I just try to, in those situations, try and do what my uh, my mentor always tells me to do and just stay grateful. You know, what is it you can be grateful for even when you are, you know, having weird spasms from fevers, what can you be grateful for? You can be grateful that you've got a bed to lie on. You can be grateful that there's a toilet that flushes that is a few metres away. You can be grateful that there is clean water that you can get out of a tap and drink without getting ill. Yet somewhere, somewhere in this world, there's someone who has the same fever, the same virus, and they don't have any of those things. And that'd be awful. So trying to remain present, trying to remain grateful is always really helpful. Um, I actually used this trick a bit this week. There's a, a trick that uh, one of my uh, coaches at the business school I went to in Amsterdam, they give you a coach, which is really handy. It's a really extraordinary man by the name of Paul. He uh, taught me the one of this, this really fantastic exercise to, to get you present. And uh, it's really simple. You just look around the room, wherever you are, whatever you're doing right now, and you pick an object or a thing and you try and describe it as if it's the first time you're ever seeing it. So you're trying to describe it to another person as if you've never seen it before. So um, I would describe to you, um, what I'll describe to you the goldfish that lives in the room that I do this from. The goldfish's name is Captain Speedy. So what would I say? I'm trying to describe the thing that I've never seen, like I've never seen it before. Okay, I'm looking at a glass looks like a glass box. Um, inside the box is a liquid. Uh, there is some, in suspended in that liquid, there's a few uh, things like there's a, there's a look, looks like the bottom of a tree trunk and some, some, some weeds. I can't figure out if they're real or not. So there's like a bit of greenery in there. There's also, uh, from what I can gather, Ariel from the Little Mermaid. Um, this must have been a kid's fish tank. And inside this, I'm using the word fish tank, but I don't know what it is. Okay, so inside this glass box uh, is uh, there's an animal in there, and there's an animal that's moving through this liquid, uh, and it's somehow able to to survive without breathing air. So I guess it's a different animal to the kind of animal I am. But I'm watching the behaviour of this animal. It's quite fascinating. Is that every now and again, this animal is um, moving up towards the surface of the water, and and taking a it must be looks like a gulp of air and then it returns down to the uh it returns down to the bottom of the tank um but as it's trying to swim lower it's having a hard time descending so it lets out a bubble of air yeah it just lets out a bubble of air to control to control its buoyancy and then it swims down again um it's white, it's got two eyes, it's got a lot of appendages, more than me. I've only got four appendages. I think it's got one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five. 
It's got six appendages, including a very, very large one at the back. Um, and it's, it's shiny. It's white and shiny. Uh, yeah, that's Captain Speedy. That's the goldfish that lives in the house. Anyway, so just that, you know, you just try and find an object in the house in the, in the you know, it could be your key ring, it could be anything, but you just try and describe it as if you've never seen it before and you can't use words that you already know to describe it. You know, so for example, if you're describing something metal, it's hard and shiny. Um, it's not wood. You know, you know what I mean? Anyway, so it works. I hope that was okay. You tuned into a podcast and instead you listened to two minutes of me talking about a fish, a goldfish. I'm sorry, there's more fish to come. Um, but I'll talk to you about that in a second. Uh, a big thanks to the new supporters on Patreon this week. Uh, Patreon is a way that you can support this show. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Osher, O-S-H-E-R. That is where you can support uh, this show because podcasts are free to listen to, but they are not free to make. So... I need to pay my audio producer, Andy Ma, who's producing, cutting, editing, making this show, and my production coordinator, Haley Van Spagna, who helps me organize all the guests. Um, so this week I had like four podcasts lined up and I was I was ready to do four entire shows, one each day, and I had to say, Haley, you've got to cancel every one of them. I can't have people over to the house. I can't get them sick. So normally that would have taken me like half a day to reorganize times to get everybody to do that, but Haley's able to coordinate their schedules and my schedule and it's well i just couldn't do the show without her or andy so i I need to pay these two wonderful people and i pay them with the money that um you pledge on patreon so patreon.com slash osher i'll make it worth your while for as little as five bucks a month you can pledge anything up to a thousand two thousand dollars whatever you want if you don't have that money that's fine don't worry i don't either uh but for as little as five bucks a month you get access to exclusive episodes and the way the exclusive episodes work is that at the first of the month, around the first of the month, when uh, all the uh, pledges come in, I'll send out an email. And on that email, there's an RSS link to a secret podcast feed that only you get. And that's got all the uh, exclusive episodes that are on there. There's a bunch by now. And, um, and so, yeah, so that's yours. If you, uh, if you help me out uh, at patreon.com slash osher. So, yeah, thank you so, so, so much uh, for helping out make this show. I'm not using advertising on this show at this point. Uh, so the only way to make the show is with your support. So if this show does bring you value, um, if you do it any find, way, find yourself looking forward to this show, um, please consider returning the energetic transaction by throwing a few bucks our way so I can pay Andy and Haley. If you don't want to, that's fine. Uh, all I'd ask is that you show someone who doesn't know how to use podcasts or hasn't listened to this podcast how to listen to it. That would be fantastic. So let me tell you about my guest today, Matt Draper is an Australian photographer whose work centers on capturing aquatic animals in their natural patterns of behavior. That's pretty much how I describe him. He's a a fascinating artist. You can follow him on Instagram at Matt, M-A-T-T, Draper, D-R-A-P-E-R, photography. Matt Draper Photography is where he is on Instagram. You'll know it when you hit it. I wanted to chat to Matt for a while now, not only because I love his photographs, and that I love to scuba dive and that I'm fascinated by the ocean and all that's in it and the way he captures the animals that I've seen reminds me more of how I've seen them when I've been under the water uh, than any other photograph I've seen. But also because Matt is a man who's figured out how to get paid what he loves to do. Now, if there's something that you are really passionate about, something that you'd love to make your career, 
Listen to the path that Matt took to get to where he is. Listen to the steps he took, the back and forth between working to make enough money to you know, buy equipment and, and, and travel to, to get the photographs he needed, to incorporating that work into honing his skills, to finally taking the leap to going full time. His journey may not be on the same axis as yours, but I'm sure the arc of it will be inspiring for you to listen to. I love talking to Matt. He's a, he's a great human and he has completely fired me back up to get the mask on, get the snorkel on again and go and get wet again and go and look at some fish. I'll say this right up the top. Matt describes some free diving experiences. Free diving is diving without a scuba tank. Uh, so he describes some free diving experiences and some breath holding concepts that require a lot of training and are very highly skilled things to do. Don't attempt the kind of things he's talking about. Don't do what I do. Hold your breath. Swim down to 10 meters like I describe here. You hear him go, what the fuck? You shouldn't do that. Uh, it's a very dangerous and stupid thing to do and you can get decompression sickness from doing it. So having had decompression sickness in the past, I urge you don't do it. There are free diving courses. Go and take a free diving course. I'm going to go take a free diving course and uh, because it's something that sounds like I really want to do. But do pull on a mask and snorkel. Put on some fins. Go and get wet. Go have a look at the environment that encompasses more of this planet than any other part of this planet, certainly more than the part that we live in. I shouldn't have called this planet Earth. I could have, should have called it planet Ocean because there's more ocean than there is Earth. But I do hope you enjoy this conversation that I have with photographer, artist, underwater guy, handsome chap, as you'll no doubt by see by the, uh, the photos of you on Instagram, uh, the fascinating Matt Draper. Hello. How are you? Good afternoon. <laughs> Morning for me. Uh, where are you? Western Australia. You're Western Australia? What are you doing over there? Oh, talking to you right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hanging out here for a few months uh, just to get away from Byron Bay for a bit. <laughs> oh, yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, too many gypsies. <laughs> <laughs> that'll happen, man. How are you today, Matt? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. I uh, I, I get uh, a bit tired and, and make mistakes with uh, my schedule a lot. So I, uh, I turned up to a uh, physio appointment this morning and went, it was an hour ago. I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. Sorry. So, I've done that with a couple of flights. It's yeah. not good. <laughs> yeah, they tend, Especially they when you're paying for them yourself as well. Yeah, they tend to not let you reschedule, uh, yeah. which, is, uh, which isn't great. So, um, mate, you're a, so you're in WA at the moment. That's, where, yeah. did you, where did you actually start everything? Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in New Zealand, so in the very bottom of the North Island, Wellington. And um, I lasted there until probably uh, 2006, maybe, and then I went up to Taranaki and did a couple of years of surfing, some quite decent-sized waves, and um, got my building apprenticeship and then moved over to Coolangatta. I saw a photo of Snapper Rocks in a surf magazine, and I booked a one-way ticket. <laughs> <laughs> well, hang on. Let's, let's talk about – I only – I um. I, I've known a few New Zealanders. I've been to New Zealand a few times. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful part of the world. What's um, what's the part of New Zealand where you grew up like? Um, it, it's like a pretty small town. It's probably as small as Byron Bay, you know, like maybe 10,000 people. And it's kind of 
a little bit gangster, I guess, to an extent. It's kind of, um, you know, it's not the, the best area, I guess, but it is, you know, home is where home is. But we grew up kind of on the surrounding hills of it in the bush. Um, my parents built a house here when I was probably about one years old and it was really cool. Everyone knows everyone and it's not too far from the ocean. Like We always kind of were around it, but more in the bush to an extent. Like we had no neighbours and just, you know, no computer, any of that stuff. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, cool. al- it's almost like a, a different planet compared to how kids grow up now. Oh, big time. And I think about that so much. I'm just like, wow, like, you know, in 20 years even, just so much has changed, even in five years, just like, what kids ask for when they're five years old compared to what I wanted, it's just like chalk and cheese, man. What did you want when you were five? Oh, nothing really. I was just happy. <laughs> like, I mean, I wanted like stuff like bikes or skateboards, but nothing like electronic. Like, that yeah. was the last So yeah. uh, when was the first time you, you took a photo? Do you remember? Um, oh, that's... A pretty broad question there. <laughs> I think my brother was actually into photography from a very young age. I remember dad getting him like a kind of really cheap film camera and um, him just taking it on all our family holidays. And I don't know if I was jealous because I wanted to do it or jealous because he just got given that and I didn't. <laughs> but I was kind of into it, like watching him use the camera. But no, it wasn't until years later when I kind of developed more of an interest for it. So what what made you want to find your way up to the to the north uh, of New Zealand where the waves are? I don't know. I just had this kind of sense of adventure from a very young age and a little bit of rebellion just to get out of home as early as I could. And so I left school when I was about 15, 16, and then got a job as a barista and Dad wouldn't talk to me for like six months. Wow. <laughs> Were you living and at home? I, yeah, I was living at home then. And then... I actually joined the volunteer fire service and moved out of home and moved in there. So I kind of ran the fire station at a very young age and did my carpentry apprenticeship. And as soon as that was through, I went up to Taranaki and, you know, about 18, 19, and just started building houses for myself and surfing. That doesn't sound like a like a bad existence. It sounds like the opening credits <laughs> of, a, of, like, Crystal Voyager or something. Yeah. <laughs> What was the uh, what was the scene like up there? Is it like a heavy local scene? Yeah, big time. It was it was very different to Wellington. It was pretty cruisy. We'd do about twenty four to thirty two hours of work a week, I think, and surf the rest of it. And it was kind of like, you know, I'd get taken out to all the the biggest spots of all the local dudes. And if I didn't paddle into a wave, it was like you're walking home or you're not getting fed tonight or things like that. And, you know, just like full grommet abuse. They used to just tell you how big it was going to be the next day and you'd be up all night listening to the waves and just like, it was cool though. It gives you a sense of like respect for older people and also in the environment because I think everyone these days wants everything now and they don't really respect the people that walk the path before them. So back then, like it was like, not back then as in it was years and years ago, but it was cool. It was like, shit, I want to surf like all the boys, you know? <laughs> yeah. And when you're talking heavy waves, what, what are we what are we talking here? Is it like the standard New Zealand boulders on the bottom kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. So it's a very tidal place. Like it's probably three meter tidal change from low to high, and and um, you know, it's the west coast of New Zealand. So it gets the same swell as Tasmania comes up, kind of those big southwest swells. And you know, like a big day would be ten to fifteen foot, like over really kind of shallow rock formation. <laughs> 
Good God. And that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's dangerous waves. That's uh, stuff you could easily get very, very hurt on. Yeah, for sure. Like I was never a very good surfer, but I felt like living there made me a better ocean person, you know. And what do you mean by a better ocean person? <clears throat> oh, just like more confident and fit and respect for the ocean and just like knowing limits and also – you know, I think a good surfer to me is overall someone that can paddle out in big waves and, and hold themselves and know when to get out and, you know, just kind of more like what the Hawaiians are into. Like. But it's the more more waterman approach. Yeah, it's correct, a yeah. It's a gender-specific word, but the idea is that you could you could swim, you can paddle, you can, <clears throat> you can spear yeah. fish, you can do all that stuff. Yeah, because a lot of people ask me now, you know, how long have you been freediving for? And I say, oh, less than three years. And from the outside looking in, they think it's just this big transformation. But when I look back on, like, my earlier years, you know, those things when I was in Taranaki were, like, already casting what I am now, you know, if that makes sense. They were kind of the ingredients to the cake. So when – because what you're describing <clears> then is, like, say, for example, in a 10 to 15-foot swell, if you reach a section that closes out, that is, like, when the wave – closes down like it looks like a like a barrel closing over in one big curtain of water falling that's yeah. you in the wash for maybe a minute or two isn't it yeah i mean yeah you could say probably 30 seconds to a minute on a big set depending so like you know some people might not be able to surf as good as pro surfers as in technique and style but like there's people that are much better in the ocean you know and they're to me, what the essence of a waterman is. So, not claiming that I am one, but living there definitely helped me in situations that I've been stuck in. You know. <laughs> so, when you're living this this life that is, uh, and any anyone that's ever tried to get a tradesman on the Gold Coast will know that when the swell's on, good luck. Um, <laughs> so, you're living a life that's really centered around the ocean. Like when when the tides are on, you're in the water. When the swell's not happening, you're building houses. Yeah, correct, yeah. That that was in New Zealand before I moved to Australia, yeah. And then I was just like, I think the next step for me was to go to the Gold Coast and try and earn some decent money. Uh, so, so that was uh, like in building? Yeah, correct. Well, that was the goal was to just go over and start working in carpentry. So I literally bought a one-way ticket and I had $300 on me and my tool bag and some surfboards and I remember getting to the Gold Coast airport and this dude just looked at me and he was like shook his head and he's like, Kiwis. Like, <laughs> really? He my, yeah, it was just like another one rocking over, you know, trying to live the dream. And um, I went straight into the Cool and Gather backpackers for probably about four months there and I was just running up to Snapper Rocks, surfing my way down and ringing every single person in the Yellow Pages trying to get a job. And how'd you go? Yeah, I, I ended up working with this pretty young dude he ran his own kind of house building company but I, you know i imagine coming to australia and getting 30 to 40 dollars an hour which everyone was talking about in new zealand i was just like wow that's crazy money you know and um i got a job with him and it, it wasn't really what i expected it to be and and then um, i found out the gold coast desalination plant was looking for workers and i somehow ended up getting the head honcho's number of that cell phone number and I rang him like literally every single day for a month he was just like so over me and it, he was, it was, yeah, he's like this geezer full English dude and he was like a bit of a gangster 
he'd um he'd just pick up the phone and say nothing and then you're like hello and he's like yeah speak like, <laughs> like and he just really put me in my place all the time and then after about a month of calling he's like all right you start tomorrow and then just hung up and i was like well what like where's the address and what do i turn <laughs> up in it? so like i someone told me that in construction there you had to wear obviously <clears throat> you know long sleeve pants and um long sleeve top and pants and steel cap boots and all of that you know which wasn't very necessary in New Zealand <laughs> at the time and um I turned up wearing like this because I had no money at the time I was wearing this this Brazilian girl's jeans I'd borrowed and like a Russell Athletic USA you know red hoodie and I turned up with all my house building tools and the dude is just like what are you wearing <laughs> everyone had high vis on and he grabbed all my tools in front of like the 80 workers there threw them on the ground he's like all you need here is a hammer you know we're form workers and he's like have you done any form work construction before and i'm like yeah yeah <laughs> he's just like blatantly lying he goes i'll give you a week and see how you go and that's how i first started getting into civil construction i was on like 45 dollars an hour back then you know 10 years ago firstly i'm sorry he's treated to like what were you like 20 he did that every day to people. I remember this guy turned up because we had a lot of Irish people working. He turned up about 10 minutes late when everyone was getting the like, morning chat and he was holding this hamburger. He just walked in, he had this big beard and he was just like super cruisy. And Cashman was like, just turned around, asked, you know, swearing really loud, talking in his English accents, you know, asked him what he was doing, turning up so late and fired him on the spot in front of everyone, like embarrassing, he had to walk out. The next day the guy just came to work and shaved his whole beard, <laughs> started working again. And then Cashman found out about a week later, he's like, didn't I fire you? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I shaved my beard and turned up the next day and he shook his hand and said, good on him. <laughs> <laughs> I've got heaps of stories about him, eh? but probably some I can't share over here, but he was, he was a classic. So it sounds like the money's all right, but is it is it making your heart pound to jump out of bed every morning? Oh, not really. I was still pretty young there, so I just thought coming from New Zealand to the Gold Coast, I was kind of really enjoying what I was doing, but always felt in my mind I had something bigger to kind of offer if it was a, oh no, something more heartfelt or creative to an extent, but that would come out in the most random of times. And I think at that age, it's hard to really grasp it because no one really encourages people to really, you know, especially in the line of work I was in construction. So, Well, I can get that. You're in your early 20s. You're earning that much money an hour. Um, you're surrounded by, you know, beardy and beardless men all day and then <laughs> yeah. Brazilians who's, who's, who don't mind you borrowing their jeans. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that wasn't <you> know, bad. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that wasn't too bad. <laughs> But surely at some point, at some point something must have clicked. Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't until nearly eight or so years later. So I guess I just kind of, I, you know, realised I was earning really good money and that wasn't going to last, excuse me, forever. So when the construction kind of started dying out on the Gold Coast, I made my, my way to uh, Western Australia and tried to get into the mines and with the same approach, you know, like no one wants to be the first person to give someone their first part of experience in Australia. It's all about who you know or 
what you know and I didn't know anyone over here and I hadn't worked in the mines so it was kind of like everyone wants that five years of experience but yeah. somehow I just kept kept trying I got in there and then you know I'd work six months on and travel for six months so I went all through Asia and and that's where I started really having an interest for photography but not underwater stuff you know I was getting myself into some amazing situations traveling I sailed around all around Asia on my mate's yacht who circumnavigated the world and later had a baby on board with his wife and hang he on, got hang on. By... he's got what <laughs> well my mate he um he bought this little 40 foot yacht well not little but it's it wasn't very seaworthy when he first bought it he bought it for about 20 grand and did some work to it and it didn't have a working toilet or a shower or navigation or anything like that and full Kiwi style he kind of set off with the mission of circumnavigating around the world and he would do a little stage and leave the boat somewhere and come back to the mines and that's where I met him. He told me about this amazing adventure he wanted to do which was leaving Malaysia, sailing over to the top of Indonesia and then going all the way through the Nicobar Islands which are completely off limits to people and then through to the Andamans and then round to Thailand. And um, we talked about it for months and then we did it. We did 72 nights on the boat. We got held up for three nights at gunpoint our passports taken off us and it was amazing and that's when I started really getting into just like I realized I was starting to live a little bit of a life that others weren't and just the experiences I've seen or, or just the way I've seen it you know like not kind of looking at it from the outside in but trying to be part of my surroundings so that's when. What's it? Hang on. What, what's it like to be held up somewhere in the South China Sea at gunpoint with a language barrier? Yeah, it was the first like couple of hours of that morning was the scariest. What happened? Probably time my entire life. We we knew like going into the Nicobar Islands, we weren't allowed to be there. Or why not? I don't know. Not, I don't know what the place is. What is it? It's um, owned by India, and it's north of Sumatra. And it's the kind of last point of defence for India for the rest of Asia. And there's lots of hidden secrets or controversy, I guess, about the island. You know, there's gold on there from World War Two. there's satellites, there's, you know, nuclear, all of these things that are just like nothing that I can say is or isn't true. Like, um, it's just speculation. And they also have tribes that are like direct descendants from Africa, you know, some of them 60,000 years old. Uh, a lot of people have probably Googled the South Sentinel and North Sentinel Islands, which is like a place where only a few humans have ever kind of set foot on land. Some of them have been killed and they still, you know, hunt with the bow and arrow and things like that. And, yeah, so we kind of cruised up there and we're staying off on the boat off an island and then I just woke up in the morning and there's a boat there at about 5 a.m. with guns just pointing at us and it was like a... A navy boat you could tell they had like authority but and when you're a young person traveling through countries like that like what does authority really mean and how can you determine if it's you know friendly or not and they just boarded the boat and said we weren't meant to be there and not many of them spoke english and then they wanted one person as insurance and they put me on that boat and took me to land and then the yacht had to follow them we had a a girl on board one of our good friends um my best mate, the captain at the time, and then an, another friend. So there's four of us, three guys, one girl. And they took me to land and then, yeah, I had to wait like 
until the yacht turned up, which was probably over an hour later. And a lot of them just had, like, you know, kind of masks on or balaclavas and telling me to get in the car and they're going to take me somewhere. And I was just like, whoa, 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 man, like, <laughs> slow down. What? Like, I was so scared. But I've been in, like, a lot of different situations traveling over the years, you know, in Brazil and Asia and stuff and kind of knew how to hold myself and try to smile. And, but it wasn't really working. <laughs> What did you normally and, uh, do? Like, I've I've never been in that situation. What when you say you know how to hold myself? What do you, what do you mean? Well, no, it's hard to kind of wrap that into one answer for you. But I guess just like adapting to the the environment, and the situation, and kind of like not trying to. I think in that moment in time, like uh, to show that the authority is not really getting to you, but not in a disrespectful way so hold your own you know smile hold your shoulders up be confident with your answers and and you know a lot of the time they're just trying to freak you out holding guns and stuff like that but obviously you need to still have like a bit of a plan going on but i was just like just told them i'm not getting in the car until i see my mates you know i want at least a phone call to ring someone and they're all just laughing at me but i was like i'm not getting in the car like you know and um and they just finally said, all right, we'll wait for your friends. And then they turned up and they took us to this kind of little jail and questioned us. And then over the next 48 hours, they would go back and forth questioning. And then they'd take us back to the boat and watch us with guns. And and then, um, yeah, on the second night, I pulled out a bottle of rum and got the soldiers drunk. And, <laughs> and uh, they ended up letting us go on our way. So... <laughs> That story could be talked about for a couple of hours, but yeah, it was very, very kind of scary at the start, and then started um, losing a lot of the authority to it over the days. Obviously, they just got bored of us and didn't know what we were doing there, and it was just a lot of miscommunication. And you got to see it from their point of view. They live on an island where they're paid by, you know, their government, the Indian people, to to keep mainland India safe from what they risk, you know. The rest of Asia. So I guess when four people turn up on a little boat with spray paint on it and <laughs> a bit of a rust bucket, they're probably wondering what's going on. Wow, so, that is yeah. It, it was just incredible journey. Like that was oh. the most amazing time of my life. Those seventy-two days, whatever it was, on a boat. Like I've never felt more humbled in my life. You know. What's it like being out in the in the middle of the ocean in the middle of the night with nothing but stars above you and knowing that. I was a baby. Man. You're just this. I was so scared a lot of the time. I remember we were sailing. When we got let go of the Nicobar Islands, we went through this passage called the 10 Degree Passage. And the soldiers kind of checked out our boat before we left to go to the Andamans. And they were just like shaking their head as in it kind of wasn't going to make it. But Johnny, like, he was a. He's a, a good sailor. And, you know, by no means we we're doing anything stupid, but we just weren't as adequately prepared as we could be, I guess. And I remember we were sailing through some really big swells and we were all on the back of the boat. It was like the middle of the day. It was super dark outside and, every, you know, when everything's just wet and cold and all the towels were wet and we were just freezing and I was so over it. I was just like, man, that, that sucks. <laughs> and I, I was just really scared. And I remember looking out and just seeing the waves just so big and feeling so small and I saw this bird like, it was probably a pectoral or something like that, an ocean 
kind of bird, very small one, and it was just gliding over the waves, and I was just like, wow, man, like, I wish I was just like that bird where I was more kind of confident in its element. And as I was thinking that, this wave went over the bird, and it just took the bird out, and it was left in the ocean. It was just like didn't, you know, we were sailing past it probably five knots, and I just stood up, and I was like, I think that bird just got taken out by a wave, like, and then no. I like nearly started crying. I looked at Johnny. I'm like, what are we doing out here, man? This is, you know, just started swimming. And I went inside, and I was just like, get me out of here. I don't want to be here anymore. If a bird can't handle it, you know, what are we doing? Oh, man, you're looking at this this beautiful metaphor for survival, and the ocean goes, have that thing. Yeah, yeah it, just, it just, like, <laughs> took it, ate it up and spat it out and just laughed at me, you know. But you were photographing this whole adventure? Yeah, you know, just like point and shoot kind of. Nothing like I wouldn't call myself a photographer then. I was just a construction worker finding time to do awesome missions with my friends and, yeah, I had a camera with me. But I got some incredible photos of some tribes that have probably never been, you know, photographed ever before on the in these islands and just stuff that I'd never kind of show people. It was just more of a documenting an important part of my life rather than showing the public what's out there because I guess, you know, every adventurer wants to find places like that but it ends up just getting blown out in the wrong way. You know, you can Google any tribe now that's had human contact and it's it's never in a positive way, I guess, or it could be, you know. But what, At what point, now you, you mentioned that uh, there was there was a baby on the boat at one point. Were you there for that? Nah, he had that probably two years ago in Panama, and I went back about a year ago for the wedding. So he, he ended up going around the whole way around the world, him and Annette. So it was pretty incredible feat. You know, he went to Madagascar and, you know, had lots of things happen to him along the way, and but he did it, you know. So when you came back from 72 days on the ocean, you know, exploring different parts of the world, remote parts of the world, untouched by barely any amount of um, modernization, and then boom, you're back on the Gold Coast. What goes through <laughs> your mind? No, I was, yeah, I went back to, um, I did a bit of time in Thailand after that, and then went back to Western Australia. And yeah, that trip honestly changed me a lot. And when I think back on it, the there was a moment when we were surfing this wave in the Andaman Islands because we did a month there and it was just some of the best surf in the world. And I remember Johnny used to be like a professional bodyboarder and I was underwater with the GoPro and it's the first time in my life, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but when a wave hits a shallow point of the reef and it creates the actual wave, you know, so the swell comes in, hits a shallow point, becomes a wave and from underwater you can see a vortex. And it's just this incredible displacement of energy. You know, it was the first time I'd really ever seen water that clear, waves that clean, and just like that. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Displacement of energy, and I was just so blown away, but I just couldn't believe it. I just kept diving under every wave and seeing Johnny come over me with his, his bodyboard and his fins dragging and just like, every, it just looked so amazing. I can't really describe how incredible it was because it was just, I was really in the moment then. And I remember going like, I honestly want to take photos underwater, like of surfers. That's what my, and it was stuck in my mind for a long time after that. That was the first moment when I was like, I want to get like a waterproof housing and really start learning more about this, you know, because I just wanted everyone to see what I was seeing. It was just like so incredible. What would you hope that people would get from seeing what you saw? Yeah, probably a little sense of feeling of what I was seeing, you know, just how incredible it was. And I don't know, just like, yeah, I know when, when, just when you're in a moment when everything's so right, all you want to do is share it, I guess. And that's what I was just seeing in, in that kind of moment. And I just thought the easiest way would be <laughs> photographs rather than trying to get someone over here. <laughs> yeah, good point. Yeah. So I guess it was a fairly clear path there, like as to, right, I'm going to get – because that's a, that's a fair whack of an investment, you know, to, to get the camera itself that is any, you know, worth taking photos that you can, you know, print up and make large. Yeah. That's a couple of grand in itself. The housing costs as much as the camera. Um, sure. That's, it's not, not a small amount of cash to come up with. No, well, yeah, from there I went back to kind of the mines in Western Australia and after that trip I was never really the same when I was out in the mines. I was kind of always striving for something a little bit more and just the mentality of people out there started taking its toll on me a little bit, not, you know, that the people out there as a whole are negative, but just in that industry I guess you come across conversations that aren't very compelling sometimes. And then so I gave the mines up there and fast forward another little bit and I went over to Queensland and, you know, the gas sector was starting up, Colson Gas, the the big devil that we all know about now. But at that time it was still just another means for me to keep working in this industry and I think I lasted about a year there. And then I was just like, nah, like that whole time I was like, I really want to start doing something, you know. And I had this idea of moving to Byron Bay and getting a, a really good camera and a water housing and start taking photos of surfers there. And that's where it all kind of started. It's not what it used to be. The barrier to entry to surf photography uh, was once very, very high. You had to, the, the cameras were even more expensive than they are now. You're working with film. Uh, you had to be dedicated enough to be able to swim in, change a role, swim back out again. Um, either that or drop eight to ten grand on a massive lens so you could shoot from the shoot from the beach um uh, but that was able to be offset by the amount of money that surf mags were paying the few photographers that were out there and then come about 2006 2007 everyone's got a dsl dslr everyone's got a gopro and surf mags are saying well you're lucky we're putting you in we're not going to pay you any money so that's so true you're you know you're you're you know, punny. And I, I was aware of all of that as well. Oh, shit. But you still yeah. went ahead. Yeah, well, I just had this. I wanted to get out of the mines, and I always had a kind of mind that was always thinking about how I can make money in other ways, you know. 
I'd been to Byron Bay quite a lot. My best friend at the time was living there. like, And my goal was to kind of get one of the best cameras on the market and the underwater housing. And, know, you know, every surfer wants a photo of themselves. So no one was doing that in Byron Bay at the time. And my kind of whole point was to go out at the pass and just sit there and take photos of people and try to sell them back to them. So I started researching all about cameras and underwater housings and getting on all these forums and stuff. And I ended up, you know, acquiring my setup and I moved to Byron and I've got these little, what I call turtle stranglers now, those little plastic bracelets that everyone wears after a charity night and things like that, you know, those donation boxes. And and I call myself Traper Shot Me. And I had these three little skulls on the, on the front of this um, black plastic band that would go on your wrist. And then on the inside, it had trapershotme at gmail.com. And I'd just sit in the water and I'd take photos all day and get to know everyone. And I'd paddle up to someone and I'd say, hey, dude, like, it's got a really cool photo of you. Here's this band, you know, and send me an email if you want it. And then they'd email me, nearly every single person would email. And they'd just describe themselves to me. Hey, I was a dude on the blue surfboard. And then I'd say, hey, like, here's a sample of the photo I, I took of you and a few would like to purchase it it's 25 bucks or 50 for a sequence and like i was killing it <laughs> for, for then you know i was like making a couple hundred bucks a day and i was just sitting in the surf and meeting everyone and and i was just like sweet this is my thing for now you know like i'm just gonna keep doing this and that's where it all it started you know that was only three years ago pretty much oh a bit bit more probably yeah just over three years ago to this day that i was doing that and now here I am talking to you. But that's a that's a lot that's a long day sitting out in the lineup, uh, uh, particularly at the pass at Byron Bay, which has its moments. There's either heaps of dolphins or heaps of sharks. <laughs> yeah, There's a lot true. of people that would never want to do that. Yeah, exactly. But it was cool. Like in in every like couple of weeks when I decide to go out for a surf, like, and it is quite a a hard place to get away off some of the guys, you know. Um, I was getting whatever ways I want because I've been out there for two weeks taking photos of everyone and, and giving all the regular locals just photos of themselves. So when I decided to paddle on my board, it was kind of like, oh, sweet. Hey, Matt, <laughs> here's a wave. Right. <laughs> Courtesy waves, I guess. <laughs> so that's the secret. So, yeah, it's a bit subliminal maybe. Uh, but at what point did you start, <clears throat> you know, turning your cameras to non-humans? Um, well, I was just... You know, I just kept trying to progress and think. A lot of people go into a creative element and their first thought is how to make money out of it, not how can I better myself, how do I better the environment, or how do I just create myself, you know, evolve on yourself as such. <clears throat> so I just kept thinking of how am I going to make more money, and I, I was like the surf industry is just there's no way. You know, after doing that for a couple of months, I was making a little bit of money just off that local scene, but it wasn't going to be a career. And then I started thinking maybe like underwater fashion or something like that. So I started an Instagram account and connecting with Instagram models, I guess. And I'd do these things that everyone speaks so highly of, collaborations. <laughs> and I'd paddle on the water and start taking photos of these girls that wanted like some more portfolio photos and I wanted some more time under the ocean and that was pretty cool and 
it didn't last very long at all. I was just like, man, this is, I was just like at a bit of a, what am I going to do? I don't want to go back to the mines and, you know, and, and that went on for a long time. But during all of that, um, a photographer actually came down to Byron Bay who found out I was living there and took me out to a spot just off the pass, which I didn't even know about. It was literally 50 metres from where I've been sitting for the last three months where all these turtles kind of hung out eating the seagrass. And I was just like, wow, it was just amazing. It, I was out there every single day, you know, and at, at the very start just having no knowledge about, you know, marine life and I was touching them and grabbing them and doing all the things that you shouldn't do because I was just like, what do you do when you see something you like so much? You want to touch it, you know, and it's the first time I've pretty much ever swum with turtles on a regular basis. So I was hanging out with them most days and taking these really cool photos and I put a couple on Facebook and some friends asked if I could print them and I was like, oh, yeah, like I'd love to. So I got on my bike and rode down to the industrial state of Byron Bay and kind of got my barley barter on as such and walked around all the printing places and and got a pretty cheap price with a good product and went back on uh, Facebook and told my friends, like, yeah, you can buy one for 200 bucks. And I sold, like, five of them. Damn. You know? And I was like, wow, cool. You know, like, what's this whole thing, printing photos and, you know? And in that time... Um, you know, one of the guys from the Byron Bay Dive Centre who was launching the boat at the pass and see me out there every day, he was like, do you want to jump on the boat and I'll take you out to Julian Rocks, like pointing at this rock formation a couple of k's off the coast. And I looked out there and I was just like, yeah, like I'd, I'd love to go out there. Like, So he put me on the boat and took me out and it was just like, it blew my mind. It was just a, the most amazing place. It's still my favourite dive destination in the world on its day and I, I guess lots of places are on its day, but Byron Bay, you know, being the most eastern point of Australian mainland and having just the winter animals and the summer animals and those crossing over at times as well, it was just, like, incredible. I think the first time I went out there would have been around this time of the year, 2014, and the manta rays are still there and the leopard sharks, and I was just, like, I didn't really care about how I was going to keep doing this, but at that moment I was just like so happy like being out there, you know, and it just really, really progressed from there. I started spending as much time as I could free diving, learning about the animals, and at that stage the only thing I could do about learning them is being in the water with them, looking at them, interacting with them, and then going home and researching them on the internet, you know, like things that scientists say not to do don't google you know for your education you know but that's what i was doing like i had no education about marine science or i didn't even know what the word conservation meant back there honestly like i'd spent 10 years in the construction industry i'm not a stupid person but it just wasn't my element and um yeah so i started building on my instagram account taking photos and placing them there and, and i got invited to tonga by a group of girls who are running this organisation and they just wanted a photographer to come over with them. And What, what organisation was it? It was Sirens for the Sea at that time. I think they're called something different now. And they got in contact with me. They emailed me and there was a humpback stuck in a fishing net. Off, or we didn't know what it was stuck in, but it was stuck off something off the beach of Byron Bay. 
So um, we kind of rocked up and went down there and we all had no really idea what we were doing, but we wanted to paddle out and help the swale and everyone was really keen. And parks and marine life there and they're trying to do their best and that's where I started kind of meeting all these people that are involved in conservation and they said to me, hey, do you want to come to Tonga? We're going to do a trip there and try do some awareness about the whales and this and that and raise some money to go and we ended up going later that year and that's when I took one of the most definitive photos in my kind of career, which is mother and calf, two humpback whales, the flukes. And that's when I started kind of really thinking about fine art photography and and trying to really develop a product that no one's doing and or people are doing, but you know, like with natural light and free diving and to keep for folks you've said you've said free diving a few times. Could you just describe for people that you know, don't really know, you know, besides dive bombing and diving at the start of a swimming race and maybe snorkeling, um, what what exactly is, is freediving? Uh, so, yeah, well, I mean, scuba is, everyone knows what scuba diving is, you know, scuba diving with the aid of oxygen at depth and freediving is just doing that on one breath hold. So it is, um, you but There's know, more to it than that. There's more to it than just going, <gasps> Yeah, for sure. At that time... At the very start, for me, it was just holding my breath, you know, because I'd done no training in it. So I think you realise how dangerous some of the things you're doing when you start getting your first bit of training from freediving. But at that time, I was just literally glorified snorkeling for me, holding my breath until. What's 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 dangerous about what's dangerous about holding your breath, swimming down, taking some photos of some fishes, and then coming back up? Yeah, good question. Well, you can have a shallow water blackout. What's which that? Is, um... <laughs> well. Yeah, let's let's not go too far into that because I can't back up the exact science behind it. But it's when you, you know, you dive down on a natural one breath hold and you exert yourself and you come up and you can black out, you know, your last five metres at that pressure change. And then most people normally sink if you don't have someone with you and that's where you can obviously drown. So, um, you know, a lot of people, just small things, when you're free diving, you should let go of your, um, you know, your snorkel because if you even end up blacking out, people can see that your face is down and also that your lungs are, you know, your mouth's not open, you're bringing the water in. But I don't want to put that on the record because, like, I'm not trained to, to talk about what people should and shouldn't be doing free diving because that's probably the number one rule is when you get training is you don't share any of your advice unless you're a professional, you know, to an extent. Well, I'm sure, like... Anybody listening, don't do don't yeah, do what yeah. Matt's just describing. Don't <laughs> nah. do it. But I'm I'm thinking about honestly. What when you say that, I'm thinking about some stupid stuff that I've done yeah. um, up on the Great Barrier Reef when I was experimenting with how long I could hold my breath, and particularly when there's learn to dive groups down on the on the bottom, kneeling down, just doing drills with the um, regulator in and out. And I would swim down and then let all my air out so I could kneel down next to them and just yeah. look around and like just be a fuckwit, you know, and just like <laughs> I'm then here without a tank and oh. then. S- swim back up. Yeah. Um, you well, know, I can, I can my see my whole first year of this. You know, just <laughs> just diving to my absolute limit all the time and not knowing anything about surface intervals and things like that, and just pushing myself so much. And until when I got my first lot of training, I realised how dangerous I was. You know, it's almost and like so, uh, so, it's better to be naive sometimes. <laughs> so you're, but but so at the time you're taking photographs, but you're only, you're limited by. 
Uh, I guess the, one of the advantages of, of diving and taking photos without a scuba tank is you don't have to worry about bubbles getting in the way, which is yeah, uh, for anyone that's ever scuba dived, if you haven't scuba dived, I scuba dive uh, whenever I can. Um, there's bubbles everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere, bubbles, 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 because everyone's always breathing out around you. Uh, but as a free diver, you don't have to worry about that. Certainly if you're down there with other free divers, you also don't have to worry about bubbles being yeah. in the in the frame, which I guess otherwise you've got to Photoshop out. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's the most like invasive way of kind of interacting with animals. To start off with, I can sit on the surface and look down on everything and get a better understanding of the direction of the animal, the behaviour, the size of it, what other animals could be around, and really think about the settings of my camera, which direction the natural light's coming from, and then breathe up accordingly, and then I can swim down and try interact with this animal as closely as I can, you know, without getting in its way to an extent or changing its, you know, behaviour. So with scuba diving, you can't really do that because your vision is impaired to an extent because you're just looking forward. You normally look, you know, out to the side and having that big cylinder on your back, you can't really normally look up and that's where a lot of things are hanging around on top of you or to the side of you. So it's a huge advantage for my photography, but for a lot of people it's a disadvantage physically. So that's where the barrier comes in. You know, if you're willing to to dedicate a lot of time and energy to it, like there's no better way to enjoy time under the under the water. So for me it was always gonna be about natural light and on a breath hold. I made that kind of decision very early on that they were going to be the two key components to the photography. And where's your where's your breath hold now? Like, to, I'm sure people have all we've all tried it in the bath. How long can I hold my breath under under water for? <laughs> Certainly, as kids in a pool. Yeah. But then you're usually staying still unless you're having how many laps of the pool can we do yeah, without correct. taking a breath? Where's where's your breath hold? Where are you comfortable? with like I, i'm happy to be under the, for this That's long. A, like the second most asked question the first one is like how do you make money or what do you do and then how long can you hold your breath for <laughs> but um i can hold my breath for probably in a static form which means i'm not moving at all and i'm really concentrating on trying to not concentrate if that makes sense probably just over four minutes and i could train on that and probably get comfortable at five quite easily but to me it doesn't really mean much. It does, obviously. You're holding your breath longer, but it's it's like surfing, going to the swimming pool and kind of paddling around on your board and saying you're training. You're training to be paddle fit, but you're not training to surf. So with free diving, if I'm going to sit in a pool and do a static breath hold every day, I'm definitely working on my capabilities to hold my breath, but I'm not working on my technique, my posture, my, um, you know, the animals, the settings of the camera. So I like to work on probably two to three minutes when I'm underwater actually working. So that's quite a fraction, you know, lower than as I'd be in the swimming pool. When I'm uh, when I'm scuba diving, the one thing I can't handle, and uh, it's, I mean, I've got, if you could see to the right of me, I've just, I've got a, a cupboard full of cameras. Um, <laughs> and one thing I've avoided is getting a water housing at this point because while I enjoy scuba diving and I enjoy it very much, I'm at this point still not okay with um, the ability to get completely lost inside my camera and, you know, my ISO settings or where my focus is or whatever to forget about how much, 
you know, gas I've got left, how long I've been <laughs> under, you know, and I, I might make some stupid mistake. And, yeah. you know, I've, I've got, I've had the bends once and I don't recommend well, it no. and I wouldn't <laughs> ever want to do that again, you yeah. know. So do you, did you have to work on, you know, being super, super, super confident in the camera so you weren't lost in that and being able to bear in mind that, I mean, I'm guessing you're out there by yourself a lot so you don't want to have a shallow water blackout because no one's there to drag you out. Yeah, it's funny you say that because you've obviously been diving you know, so much longer than you've ever been using a camera underwater. Like you said, you don't have a housing. But to me, both of those things started at the same time. So right. I was learning about the camera as I was learning about freediving. So I was always in the moment with my camera. And it was the first, at that time, it was always the first thing I was looking at, not the animal, which is like, you know, a lot of, when I d- dive with Riley Elliott, one of my best friends, he's a shark scientist, and we do a lot of trips together. And he's educated me so much on interacting with animals and learning behavior and I'm still so early to all of that he's been doing it for 10 years and he's always like Maddie stop looking at your camera you know like look at the shark and I'm like it's just because I've I've learned both of those things I haven't been free diving around sharks and then grabbed a camera so you know it's always just been looking through the camera to an extent um so yeah like to answer the question I guess like I am just in the moment with both of those things, I guess. You mentioned uh, you mentioned this before as well. I mean, I'm I'm also quite a fan of uh, early scuba documentaries just because there's something so <laughs> spaceman about it, um, especially all the Jacques Cousteau stuff. And you, you mentioned something interesting before about trying not to influence the animal's behaviour. Well, in every one of these early scuba things, <laughs> these guys are grabbing sharks by the yeah. tail and they're fucking knifing an octopus and they're picking <laughs> oh, up time. this conch shell. Yeah, yeah. check it out. We're, we're under the sea. We're pirates. <laughs> yeah. um, but I'm, I'm guessing that is really important to you as well, is that when you are taking a photograph, you're trying to capture a moment um, pr- 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 not privy to the human eye and that trying to... Uh, in, in in many ways, minimise your presence in the animal's behavioural reaction so people get the most authentic look at the animal as they possibly can. Yeah, for sure. And at, at the very start, like I said, when I was hanging out with these turtles, I was had that same mentality. I wanted to grab them and, excuse me, can you ride them or what do they do when you do this and that? And, you know, that's kind of ego-based. It's me trying to get a reaction out of the animal like you do with a dog. To, but... As the photography started progressing and what a lot of people are noticing about the images and why it's kind of growing so quickly is that I was really trying to photograph the images in their natural state, almost like a portrait to an extent, like where no one's really kind of seen them too much in that style, especially with natural light. So um, there's still a lot of times where I have to touch animals to get some of these images, and this is especially with sharks. and Everyone's so opinionated now and, you know, you put something out there behind the scenes photo and there's a thousand people questioning it or giving their own opinion, which is fine because people just want to learn, you know, that they're not educated on it to an extent. So I get a lot of kind of negative comments. I I was at the early stages of when I'd show a photograph of me touching a shark or something like that. And then over time, as my following started growing and people started realizing that I don't really beat around the bush too much and there's no bullshit for my comments like I started saying you know you have to try dominate these sharks to an extent show them that you're the boss in a situation if there's food involved 
you're pretty much just another shark. You know, you're both on the surface, and if you're on the surface, you're on the top of the, you know, the hierarchy. So a lot of these images had me or my peers pushing the sharks away. And once you start explaining to people, these, this is where the media comes from. This is how you can enjoy these images and learn more about them. And people start getting a better understanding and and realize what you got to do. So I can see back in those early days, like there was a need for some of the stuff they're doing. And then a lot of the other stuff, they're probably just prodding and pushing and trying to get the coolest open mouth <laughs> images they could or, Right. You know, what's your cool? It's everything that we love. Like, you look back on those images of, you know. Yeah. Like, it's Philippe, just... Philippe Cousteau and the uh, Nautilus. <laughs> we are down on the, uh, the Calypso <laughs> off the southern Indian. Re- you know, these guys were doing some wild. But they were the first people down there. No one had oh, ever done it before. Exactly. There's and they're, no seeing, them. they're seeing creatures that no one's ever seen. You know, I, I guess they've got that, you know, kind of explorer we, we you know take take what you find kind of mentality that was indicative of the time of ex- early exploration now i get the feeling that it's a lot more try not to disturb anything let's only take photos and leave only footprints um yeah. when you i i came to know you through a, a mutual friend but i've been following you on instagram um for some time now yeah however and i, and I do want to ask you about this because it it is uh instagram and, and the way that uh, the internet has uh, in many way, created more value in photography, but at the same time, cheapened photography uh, to almost where a great photograph is, have zero or less value. Um, and I say less value because I've seen a photo that I could swear is your photo, but it's not your photo. Oh, don't get but me started it, on that. <laughs> no, so, but I want to ask about that because yeah. you have a particular kind of style, particularly the series of um, where it's just the animal just almost floating in space, where the way you've worked the image is that it's just the animal floating in a dark black background, which is unlike other underwater photography. And it was only a couple of weeks until I'd seen somebody else doing that. What's yeah. your thoughts on on people copying style? I mean, we all have to emulate style when we begin, but at some point we have to create our own. What's your thoughts there? Um, honestly, it, it gets to me a lot. Like I think about it quite a lot, and it's normally the people that are closest around you that kind of do it to an extent and there's a lot of things you know like imitation is the most sincere form of flattery and and you can try think about that as much as you can but when you see someone just blatantly doing something so obvious it it annoys me and but I just think back you know like what I've put in place from the very start is I really wanted to, to develop you know a product that no one else is doing and the product being very limited fine art prints so you know numbered prints are printed on 100% cotton rag I have a very nice certificate of authenticity which is like letterpress printed by the original you know letterpress from Byron Bay that used to do the newspapers there and so I started just doing things like where I wouldn't release my best images on Instagram I'd, I'd contact collectors instead and you know things like that once you start developing more of a name and you start you know a so-called career and earning money from it. I think those things get pushed to the back of your mind. You know, when you're succeeding a bit more, you kind of think, oh, it's all right. You know, it's if someone's doing that, no worries. He's, he's going to find it hard when he comes to that stage if he wants to keep doing that that black style. He's going to have trouble when it comes to this, or he's going to run out of animals to photograph because I've just spent two years traveling around the world on, you know, a shoestring to get these images. So you start thinking about that a lot. But obviously it, it gets to you. 
and just coming back from LA and meeting all these incredible people and celebrities and you know movie people that work in movie and and um you know musicians they all have people that that have copied them over the time and once you start hearing their stories because I'm still very you know I'm just starting my career as such and just getting my name out there and all this has been very overwhelming um so when you start hearing those conversations from people that, is, you know, have the similar things and it's it's a lot easier to kind of digest, I think, to an extent. Does that make sense, you know? like it, Yeah, no, it, it does. It like, does. I mean, I'll you... see one on Instagram and I'm like, man, like that arsehole, like this person even knows me. And then you think, oh, well, first of all, he likes the work if he's copying it. Second of all, I have enough people that know it's my style now. And then third of all, like Instagram, it's, it's whatever. I'm, I'm trying to be more professional these days anyway and, and move away from putting my best work on social media and yeah. you know more gallery stuff and shows and you know proper fine art so not saying that instagram isn't an awesome platform it's where i built everything from you know i've got no credentials so i disagree if you've got if you've got people <laughs> willing to pay uh four or five figures for a print that's current that's credentials in the art world yeah yeah well it's yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. Yeah. But it is. But that that that's really well it, what it is. You you said you wanted to get people to feel what it felt like seeing the wave. Yeah. Uh you know, in the in the northern Indian Ocean breaking over a reef. Um do you feel that you're still that's why you're still taking photos or is the reason you're taking the photos changed? Um I think it's yeah, well showing the animal now. I think I'm I can confidently say I'm confidently saying I'm really showing the animal for what it is and it's natural, you know, like what I wanted to do with the the wave I'm I'm doing with the animal which has more importance to it. People can really relate, you know, seeing a living animal and it's the same like when I look at landscape photos I think wow, like they're really cool but it's photos of people or living things that you know, expressions that people are more you know, they get a better response to an extent or they give you a, a bigger feeling inside because you can react to that expression you might be seeing on the animal and you think, wow, like that animal is actually smiling at me or this one looks sad or this and that. So what I really wanted to, yeah, that concept of showing the wave breaking is kind of developed into showing the beauty of the animals and the importance of the ocean and, and the biggest thing is for me is trying to replace any fear with fascination. Like people just don't know about the ocean and, we're told from such an early age to be scared of so many things in the water. And it pisses me off because, you know, the first thing you teach a 14 to 17-year-old child of yours is the importance of getting into a car, for example. All right, these are all the things that your dad will tell you. Don't drive the car when it's raining, pull over on the side. If you get a flat tyre, ring me. Don't jump in with your mates if they're on the piss. Don't jump in the boot. So you get all of these tips as such on how to be safe in a car but why don't we get them about the ocean we just think we can grab a surfboard and paddle out and then we come out worse and then the shark comes out worse off if there is a unwanted incident so you know through the images like i've started to realize the importance of media and people will only ever care about what they love and if they love the ocean they'll start wanting to learn more about it so yeah i'm kind of going off on a tangent there but 
No, no, that's okay. But why is it I, I, you said that you were a guy working in the fossil fuel industry who didn't know about conservation? What exactly. are you now? Yeah, well, <laughs> biggest advocate for it. So, I mean, and, and why just, is it why is it important? Why is it important to you? Because I love it. Like, <laughs> I I love the ocean, and I know the importance of it now. Like, and I I didn't beforehand, and it, it happened naturally. And I think another thing, like working in that industry for so long, and then going straight into meeting some of the most prominent conservation characters as such in the world, I can see how there is that huge divide. And when you're talking to a group of people in the mines about, you know, throwing their trash out daily or you're talking to Sylvia Earle or someone in, in a, a conservation campaign, you can see that you're just you're preaching to the choir and the importance for me is like building that bridge and I had to do construction for a long time at the early stages of all of this to pay for everything. And every time I went back, I just was like, man, like this is so not me. But I also had in the back of my mind, like I was just doing this like not long ago. I still am now. And these are the people, if I can change just by sharing stories, you know, storytelling is the best way to change someone's opinion. It's by giving them reminders of things that they've seen in their, their life themselves. So I'd say the boys down the mines because, you know, everyone uses single-use plastic out there and they'll get nine or ten containers a day to put their food in it and this is 3,000 people on one site and they'd put all of those in the bin every single day and the bin would just get put into a bigger truck and they'd dig a hole around the desert and fill it up, you know, and, that, and that's like how it is. So I'd say to the guys, hey, if you can, you know, I'd show them one of my coolest shark photos I took and I'd say if anyone can reuse their plastic for the whole shutdown you know it might be 10 days to a month just all you have to do is in the crib room wash it out every day i'll print you a print for free and then so like people would be like sweet i'm doing that first of all they'd want to do it just to prove a point that i'm going to go print something worth value and give it to them and then you know they found out how easy it was and then some people come back the next shutdown with their own tupperware and it's like sweet like how easy is that you just got to connect with people on their level you know, and, and from the outside looking in, everyone just looks at the mines as this big, scary, chemical fuel place. But everything we use has a form of something that is made from petroleum or iron ore. Or, you know, and, and the sector I worked in was iron ore. It's a glorified quarry to an extent. When you talk about the mines, people think I was underground drilling things and this and that. I was simply a carpenter, you know, getting the the civil construction ready for the mine to start. So... As a whole, we can change all of that by lowering our consumer, you know, um, not consuming as much and just being more aware and, and just helping out where we can. Because a lot of people would say to me, like, what, you can't take photos of whales and then go back to the mines. This is when I started really knowing what I wanted to do and needing a lot of funding for it. And I'd say, like, and I used to take that to heart. I'd be like, man, like, maybe I should, like, like how, how can I go back to the mines and then, say that I care about the whales and things like that. Like, and a lot of people still now would say, like, that's unacceptable, but it's the reality of a lot of people. You know, like, a lot of money that does good things comes from bad places, but it's what you can do and how you can offset it yourself, I think. Or maybe I'm just making an excuse because I did it for so long. I don't know. No, man. I uh, I certainly hope that your your mother and calf finds its way to the wall of someone who has to make an important decision about a coal mine one day. Yeah. Oh, well, I think of this trip to LA. I've 
definitely met a lot of people <laughs> that um, helped kind of run the world as such. It was a very humbling trip. And, and yeah, and that's all you need to do is be real and tell them stories and connect on their level. And they'll go home and listen to that little voice inside them and make little changes. If you're just the person that's standing there fighting everything all the time, like, and it has its place. And I just think of all these people on the front line doing these things. It's just like incredible. But the only people listening are the people that are already converted to a lot of these things. And for me, I get contacted all the time. Can you share this photo of this and that or, you know, that shark that got curled? And I'm just like, man, like, I don't like looking at that shit. So why is someone that, like, already doesn't like the ocean and fishes for a, a living going to care about it? So, like, that that's... I don't want to in any way say what other people are doing is like not relevant. I'm just saying for my journey, I just want to show the importance by showing how beautiful everything is. Like, And when someone texts me and they're like, hey, have you seen this documentary? I'm like, honestly, it's the last thing I want to see. I, I want to be informed about what's going on, how I can help. But I want to be in the ocean looking at what's alive, what's living, what's smiling right in front of me, and then show everyone else because it's a longer process, but it will come back around tenfold. Matt, I could talk to you all afternoon, but I'm afraid I, I've I've got to get off the I've got to get off the call, buddy. No, You're an absolute good, absolute champion. Thank you so much for taking the time, man. I'm humbled. Thank you. Cheers for having me on. Like, um, hopefully, I talked to some substance, but oh, <laughs> I felt mate, like I was going back great. and forth a lot. No, but it's it's great to hear. Thank you so yeah. much. All good, brother. That was Matt Draper. You can follow him on Instagram at Matt Draper Photography. You can also see his work at mattdraperphotography.com. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thanks to you if you support the show on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show, if the show's brought you value today, if you thought, you know what, I like that show. I've listened to six in a row now. Um, consider pledging five bucks a month to help make the show. It's about the cost of a fancy cup of coffee once a week and it makes sure that this show will be in your phone every Monday when you get up and go and do your thing to make your dream come true. Thanks so much for being here. I hope you have a great time this week, whatever you do. I'm going to try and get better. And until I speak to you next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 